0: when a forecast goes wrong, as it so often does, who's to blame? Hi everybody, I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. It's a common bit of conventional, if not cliched, wisdom that the demand forecast is always wrong. Okay, so does that mean that planners should just throw up their hands and not even try to improve it? Obviously not. But the first step toward forecast excellence is understanding when and why a forecast was wrong in the first place. And that requires a deep dive into the fundamentals of forecasting, both from the standpoint of number crunching and understanding aspects of human behavior. We'll plumb those depths today with the help of my guest, Jonathan Carlsa, founding partner of North Fine Partners. We'll learn why forecasting techniques haven't changed much over the last 70 years, and what's new now that promises to transform the way that companies balance supply with demand. There are some clear pitfalls that planners need to avoid, including unconscious biases that can skew the results. So here is my conversation with Jonathan Carlsa. Jonathan Carlson, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks very much, Bob.
0: Jonathan, there are so many ways in which forecasts and demand planning forecasts and the like can go wrong. What are some of the major traps that companies fall into when their forecasts do go wrong? Why does that happen?
1: Well, there's a hackneyed phrase in the forecasting space, which is the forecast is always wrong. And that's literally true. But a lot of people take that to mean this is in some way an excuse or a path for not continually striving for forecast excellence. It's certainly not. It's a reminder just that the very nature of the forecasting process is such that you're never going to get it exactly right. The mistake that a lot of companies make, the first mistake they make with forecasts is to believe they have to calibrate their supply chain or manufacturing output on forecasting perfection. That's not possible. Forecasts begin to go wrong from the very outset when there is too much expected of the process without a really clear line of sight to what is realistic in the value stream or vertical that the business is part of.
0: What about inputs, though? I mean, up to this point, how have forecasts been put together? What have they relied on? Is it purely history that serves as the basis for understanding what's going on in the future? Is that basically what a forecast has been?
1: Oftentimes, autoregressive or time series forecasting, which you're referring to, based on the not entirely flawed assumption that what has happened in the past is going to be a good indicator for what happens in the future. There's nothing inherently wrong with that other than the future sometimes looks different than the past. And if we fail to recognize and capture that, our supply chain will probably get hit with the equivalent of a bus. That said, the idea of time series or autoregressive forecasting has essentially been the same for about 70 years. A lot of the mathematical concepts that time series forecasting rests on, sits on algorithms that have been around since the 1950s. Where forecasts in the 21st century are going wrong versus where their predecessors in the 20th century strove for excellence is that we now have a lot more insight into some of the unconscious biases and heuristics that the planners who are making the forecasts have. This is due to a lot of the groundbreaking work that Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman in the 1970s did in this space, Kahneman's work is a lot more popular now since he won the Nobel Prize about 20 years ago. And this is a really exciting way that I think the planners who are running statistical forecasts or time series forecasts can add additional value by identifying some of the unconscious biases and heuristics that they bake into the process every time they touch it.
0: Uh, now, there's a good point. I want to touch on that because I think that is a strong part of Kahneman and Tversky's studies and work. What is forecast bias exactly, and how can it be measured?
1: Bias, in a statistical sense as it relates to a forecast, tells us directionally how we are wrong. Did I overshoot the mark or did I undershoot the mark? And it's as simple as looking at the delta between what I guessed my need was going to be and what the need ended up being. And if I tend to do that positively over time, we call that positive bias, that tends to drive excess inventories. And if I tend to undershoot the mark consistently over time, that's a negative bias and that tends to lead to unhappy customers because of stockouts. But when we're talking about unconscious biases and heuristics as they relate to forecasters, we're talking not about statistical biases, but we're talking about the psychological biases that humans bring to the process when they get involved in forecasting. Three great examples of the most common unconscious heuristics that tend to plague demand planners or forecasters are the anchoring heuristic, the availability heuristic, and the naive diversification heuristic. Anchoring is the natural tendency that humans have to stay kind of close to a pre-existing point. So if we give salespeople or demand planners an existing forecast, a lot of research shows they're less likely to stray off of what they're seeing in front of them, irrespective of what other insights they might otherwise have because they're anchored to that point. That's something we definitely need to move away from if we want to get a line of sight to what the true demand looks like. Availability heuristics are similar in that humans are biased unconsciously by whatever information has been around them at the time. So if there's a preponderance of negative information that they've been subjected to at the time of forecasting, a lot of studies show they're going to have a more negative outlook in the forecast. And the converse is true as well. Naive diversification is a really interesting one. This is one where a lot of humans want to show value. So we're asking a forecaster or a demand planner or a salesperson to either adjust or create a forecast for us. And it's natural that they want to add value to the process. And what naive diversification looks like is when people are given a number of different tasks or questions at the same time, they have a tendency to diversify the types of answers they give so that it looks like they aren't just automatically answering the same thing so if we're asking a a forecaster to evaluate 50 skus, and if we gave them a data set where every one of these 50 skus had six trailing months of positive bias for the first few they might make a negative correction to neutralize that bias but if part after part exhibited the same behavior what the research shows us is as a result of naive diversification heuristics they would tend to do that less frequently and spread out the types of adjustments they made in an attempt to show that they aren't just answering by rote. And the list goes on. There's a lot of really interesting ways we can understand psychologically how people engage with the forecast.
0: Those are examples of psychological bias. I'm wondering if there are also structural or organizational biases within companies that, in other words, these forecasts don't take place in a vacuum, that the forecasters are under certain amount of pressure from executives above them to present certain types of forecasts and certain types of pictures of the future, does that serve as an important bias as well?
1: Absolutely. And this is one of the worst practices we see in a a lot of forecast processes. Ideally, the statistically driven element of the forecast, before we start getting into the addition of business intelligence adjustments, should, to the extent it's possible, be undertaken in as close to a vacuum as is possible in an organization. Because for the point you made, Bob, when you have forecasters subjected to supply chain people who are driven by the need for efficiency, there is a tendency to try to reduce the forecast or at least reduce the propensity to have positive bias in a forecast. And conversely, when they're speaking with salespeople who are worried more about stockouts than inventory. There's absolutely pressure to make sure the forecast is going to be high enough to make sure that their customers have everything they need. And from senior management, especially in public companies who have quarterly earnings requirements, we see time and time again a request to the demand planning organization to create a forecast and then a request to make that forecast look more closely like what we thought the earnings projections were going to look like.
0: As in the case of predicting the weather, the length of your planning horizon or your forecasting horizon, the longer it gets, the less likely that your forecast is going to be accurate. Is that the case now? I mean, that has always been the case, has it not? And are we doing a better job these days of somehow coming up with better long-term forecasts? Or are we simply saying that that just is the way it goes because of unpredictability and so-called chaos theory, so to speak?
1: Well, what I think we've gotten better at is understanding the natural limitations of forecasting. And again, I come back to this phrase, the forecast is always wrong. When you end up calibrating a supply chain with the understanding that the forecast is going to provide some really insightful guidance, especially in the short and midterm horizon, but that you need to bake buffers in for the ultimate eventuality of error, it doesn't become as critical to try to grind every ounce of forecast accuracy out of a process. So some of your listeners who may be purists are going to maybe take issue with that statement. Let me be clear. To the extent that we have time and resources available, we should absolutely strive for the best possible forecast. But given the reality that time and resources are often scarce, my point is rather than aiming at forecast perfection across every single skew, we should focus where it matters and in the horizon that matters, and try to do the best we can there. Now, to come back to your original question about the length of the horizon, I think what we're doing a much better job at is understanding that for the purposes of supply chain planning and procurement planning, what happens to a SKU at the 12 or 18 or 24-month mark is not nearly as critical as what happens to it at the six-month mark. And of course, this, this varies by the value stream that one is part of. But When you recognize that for the purposes of rough cut capacity planning, CapEx investment, procurement, when we're looking out beyond 12 months, we don't have to necessarily forecast SKUs. We can forecast product families. We can forecast larger aggregations. And then we have the benefit of the law of large numbers to carry some of the additional accuracy out over that horizon. But to say that we've gotten in the 21st century better at forecasting out past that point I'd have to say, in my experience, I haven't seen a lot of data that would support that.
0: That brings us to the idea of advanced statistical modeling. Now, as you point out, algorithms have been used for forecasting for decades. What is it about today's advanced statistical modeling and advanced analytics that's different from the past, other than simply the availability of more data?
1: I would say not a whole lot. And again, this may disappoint some of your listeners. But I think fundamentally what's different is, as you've already said, the availability and access to data, and secondly, the popularization of some of these mathematical concepts that we now call advanced but really have been around for a long, long time. Talking about even artificial intelligence, what most people ascribe to the phrase artificial intelligence is a heuristic process that has existed in a lot of forecast tools for a long time. Although I'm not going to be dismissive of the fact that there's still a lot of very exciting work that's happening in advanced statistics and in math, I think what's more important now is because of the availability of data and the availability of tools that can be used to easily model that data, we're overlooking something more fundamental than the math and the artificial intelligence itself, and that is the foundation upon which it rests, the data. With so much more data readily available, what we aren't hearing enough about is master data management, actually vetting that data, actually ensuring that that data has the integrity that it needs to begin taking these powerful modeling tools and extrapolating it into the future and then making business decisions based on that. There's new tools, they have fancy new interfaces, but the math itself isn't particularly new. The availability of data is the big differentiator and I would argue we need to be, for every time we talk about AI, be talking about master data management. Because without that, we will be making big models that give us, we think, powerful insights that ultimately lead us the wrong direction.
0: Do you think of that as an analytical exercise, or is that pre-analytics? Before you even get to the point of analyzing the data, somehow you're able to vet it before you actually do that.
1: That's a great question. So I would argue master data management exists in a number of different tiers. And I would say at the highest tier, it's a governance process. So I'm not speaking with specificity to demand planning data I'm talking about all the data that an enterprise creates and that's really a governance role because we're not just talking about data integrity we're talking about data security and we're talking about the location of the data and making sure the entire enterprise is really well aligned across all three of those facets and then as we get more granular on data absolutely there's a pre-analytical and an analytical role as governance has a framework and guidelines I would argue that is pre-analysis. We make sure that the data we're working on conforms to the the guidelines that we need for its effective use. But once we get into it, the role of a demand analyst or forecast analyst is oftentimes more than 50% data preparation. And not just rote, that's also analytical. Where we look at patterns in the data, we look at outliers and try to determine, are these non-repeating one-offs? Should I scrub my data? Is this something that I can definitively explain is never going to happen again, or isn't it? There's all kinds of scenarios that an effective demand analyst would have to work through to effectively prepare that data for use in a tool.
0: Are we getting our arms around unstructured data, especially data from social media, or is that still a challenge? I
1: mean, data in general is always going to be a challenge, and the less structured it is, the more challenging it is. That's an area where absolutely I'd say we have made strides in the last 15 years though. Again, because of the increase in volume and exposure to this type of data, there is a corollary increase in the number of people who can help add structure to and make use of that data. There's a lot of effective tools now that couldn't have existed 20 years ago just because the type of data they're working with didn't exist. But again, at the end of the day, we're talking about data in its many forms, and this fundamentally isn't a new challenge.
0: Even though social media is with us now more than it ever has been before, certainly in terms of volume, it's, it's a new challenge, but you're saying that the very presence of unstructured data isn't in and of itself new.
1: Exactly right. Absolutely, volumetrically, it's new. But the idea of trying to quantify the qualitative, which is essentially what one of the big challenges around social media is, this is not a new challenge. Ad agencies in, in the 40s and 50s began working with this concept, and we're talking about now six or seven decades ago. Again, I'm not arguing we haven't made any advancement. My argument is the fundamental challenge isn't new, the volume is new, and we have a host of new tools at our disposal, but we needn't be afraid of the challenge because we do have precedents for working with it.
0: All of these advances that you're describing to me, is that what we talk about when we use the phrase forecast value added? Or is that something in and of itself that's quite different from what we've been discussing?
1: Forecast value add is definitely an area where I could point to as an exciting, relatively new development in the forecasting process. Forecast value add is a way of understanding what incremental value each individual input or adjustment to the forecasting process makes. So to make it clearer, we began the conversation by talking about statistically-driven forecasting. Intuitively, it feels as though adding human input to a statistically-driven forecast should improve it, because like we said, a statistically-driven forecast is just the result of looking at the past and extrapolating into the future. Intuitively, it feels as though adding a human who knows something different about the future should make it better. For most of the life of modern demand planning, we looked at the end of the forecasting process at two key metrics, accuracy and bias, to determine if we were doing a quote-unquote good or bad job. In the last 15 or 20 years, what's becoming increasingly popular is adding a third metric, forecast value add, to that process to determine okay, we understand what our bias is, we understand how good or bad we did, but now let's understand what parts of the process brought us to that point. Did the human inputs I made actually improve what the naked statistical forecast was, or did they actually make me a little bit worse? And then drilling down even further into granularity there, was it the sales inputs that made me better, or was it the marketing inputs, or was it the syndicated feeds I get on... POS data that I was rolling into my forecast. So forecast value add really takes us a step further in understanding what are the parts of the forecast that are making us better or worse, and that facilitates the all-important root cause and corrective action that's part of the continuous improvement culture that every demand planning organization should be based
0: on. Kind of a Monday morning quarterbacking exercise in, in a way, isn't it?
1: In a way, absolutely.
0: Now, you've made it quite clear that you are not a proponent of the idea that because the forecast is, quote-unquote, always wrong, we should just throw up our hands and not even try. On the other hand, a lot of people talk about the need to begin to emphasize agility over predictability. That is, the ability to tweak the forecast as you get closer to actual demand and you need to make changes. How are we doing in that area, in those short horizon forecasts, how are we doing throughout the organization and quickly being able to modify a forecast when we see changes out there that require that? I'm
1: going to parse a couple parts of that question because a lot of people talk about agility in terms of the need to make frequent forecast updates. And I would absolutely agree with you that, number one, we are seeing a trend where agility is beginning, especially in some value streams, to be emphasized more greatly than forecast accuracy. Agility, though, to me, doesn't necessarily mean making more frequent updates to the forecast. Because if you think about what the forecast role in supply chain management is, is to give us enough advanced warning that we can get capacity in place or we can get raw materials procured to effectively meet the demand. Now, if we're talking about shorter and shorter horizons, we may have the tools to manage that data today. We may have the bandwidth to make those more frequent adjustments but what doesn't change is the 24 days that it takes for a material shipped from shanghai to hit the port of los angeles you can get more accurate two days out or one week out or two weeks out but that's not going to change the length of time it takes for the material that you guessed about to actually reach the shore get in your facility and get prepared for value added agility needs to be addressed and is a critical part of supply chain management but to me The emphasis on agility needs to take place more on the supply side and manufacturing side than in the forecasting side. And I think that with the exception of some special verticals, a focus on increased agility in forecasting, which is often a euphemism for just forecasting more frequently, is wrong headed because it misses the point of why we were forecasting in the first place. Getting more effective at forecasting in the short term, which I define as one to three months will give us a bit of breathing room to bake more agility into the supply chain management side on the operation side.
0: Well, for all the numbers that we have at our command these days when it comes to forecasting, there's always that pesky little problem of physical movement of, and production of products. So uh, it's interesting. Absolutely. But uh, we seem to be doing a better job these days. And, and Jonathan Carlson, uh, I want to thank you so much for shining a light on just where we are in the world of forecasting today and how that differs from the past and where it might go in the future. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: It was a pleasure to be with you, Bob.
0: That was my conversation with Jonathan Carlson of North Fine Partners, talking about why demand forecasts go wrong. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com.